0: We need to finish up the millennial views. So, we went over the three reading strategies yesterday historicist, futurist, and idealist. And then we went over two of the charts um, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. All right. And what was really the big difference between the two? What did dispensational have that historic doesn't have? Rapture. Rapture, right? Um, This idea that. before or during the tribulation, Christians disappear. And they're not around for either all of it or for the last half of it. Whereas historic premillennialism says, no, the church will be on earth through the entire reign of the Antichrist. Through all of the great tribulation, Christians will be here. Um, the next view, I think, is probably the one that um, you, you guys would struggle with the most. Um, this is a view that Dr. Johnson holds. Uh, this, is, this is something that, that is, um, it has a lot of life throughout the church, but it's a little bit of, of a, of a I, I think like for, for a lot of people kind of getting started, it's a hard one to kind of wrap your mind around. And it's the amillennial view. Um, I'm just gonna abbreviate it Um The amillennial view, ah means no is a prefix, right? And and so the all millennial view says there is no millennium, but that's a little bit uh, of a a misstatement. They do believe in a millennium. They just don't believe in a millennium the same way that pre and post mill do. The millennium, remember, in in pre millennialism, was this thousand year period where Jesus is physically reigning as king on earth before the new heavens and new earth. All right, all millennialism does not approach the, the millennium that way. Basically, the way that all millennialism works is that you have the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, all of that stuff, which ushered in what we call the church age. The church age starts, uh, you know, after Jesus ascends into heaven and the spirit comes at Pentecost. Uh, That's the church age. And uh, the church age is something that you and I are still in. The church age is the age when the church is on on earth, basically. Um, in all millennialism, the church age is equivalent with the millennium. Um, in Revelation 20, which of course we've not gotten to yet, but you read about it being discussed in the link the other night. Um, in Revelation 20, there is this idea that during the thousand years, um, believers are reigning on the earth. And amillennialism takes that to be kind of a spiritual reign of, of, of the church. Um, they don't take it to be, um, you know, the, the church is literally in positions of political authority and power or anything like that. Um, instead, the church is, is, is kind of reigning on earth. Another way that amillennialism will approach it is that in Revelation 20, you have this language of kind of the first resurrection. And they take that to really just kind of be a reference to the spiritual life that dead saints are enjoying in heaven in the presence of God. And in that sense, they they are in heaven. They are with Christ in the throne room of God. They, in a sense, are kind of having this spiritual reign and rule. Um, On millennialism, we mentioned how um, premillennialism has kind of this pessimistic view of the future where, like, things are going to get really, really bad, and the Antichrist is going to come, and you're going to have this tribulation, and things are just going to get really, really, really bad. Like, in a lot of premillennial views, um, especially, uh, like, historic premill, where there's not a rapture that happens, persecution against Christians gets so bad that there's, like, two people. All right? Like, like uh, premillennialism really does not think the church is going to have a good time in world history. It's a very pessimistic view. Uh, on millennialism, it kind of depends on who you ask, whether it's... it's um, optimistic or pessimistic. A lot of times amillennialism, um, there's kind of an idea that history is going to do this sort of thing. There's going to be some times where the uh, church and the gospel seem to be doing great. There are going to be other times where it seems like Christianity and the church is really on decline. So There's going to be hills and there's going to be valleys. Alright? And a lot of times, the way that amillennialism will talk about this is something sort of along these lines i heard an all amillennial say not long ago that in his view um what basically happens throughout world history is that the powers of good get better and the powers of evil get worse and so that by the end it's really really good versus very 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 bad or something like that um But depending on who you ask, um, you know, they might draw this chart a little bit differently. But the thing that really distinguishes this view is that there is no really kind of like golden age in world history before the new heavens and new earth. The church age extends on Uh, a lot. Some of these people do believe in, like, one literal antichrist that will come. Some of them think that antichrist is just kind of this spiritual thing, kind of like we saw in John, where, like, it's not just one dude. It's it's just, you know, forces opposed to Christ. It's a very wide view is basically what I'm trying to get across. But at its most basic, the church age extends on until the second coming of Christ. The thousand years in Revelation are non-literal. Um, the thousand years only refer to some long, some long period of time, and so um, the church age will extend on, and then at some point um, Christ returns, and then uh, whenever Jesus returns, uh, he we have the resurrection, we have the judgment. We have new heavens and new earth, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, This view, like I said, is pretty broad, um, depending on which amillennial you're interacting with and reading or talking to. They might have a great rebellion that happens right before Christ's return. They might have um, an antichrist figure that shows up. Um, But this view, like I said, it's kind of broad, and, Uh, This is a view that really, um, if, if if you're thinking about the three reading strategies, this is the view that really is going to latch itself most wholeheartedly onto that idealist reading, where Revelation is kind of cyclical. In every single generation, you have kind of the same struggles and same tensions and same figures and all of that sort of stuff, just repeated over and over and over again. So that would be the amillennial view, all right? No literal thousand years of, of, of christ returning and ruling on earth instead the millennium is about the church age as um, the church triumphant in heaven enjoys its rule with christ and and the church on earth um, seeks to share the gospel and seeks to be the kingdom of god on earth okay questions about this view Really, any question you asked, I would say, well, some of them do, but some of them don't, probably. Right? It's a very, very broad view. Um, This view should not be discounted quickly, though. Um, A lot of people hear this and get super bent out of shape because they say, well, the Revelation 20 talks about a millennium. It talks about a thousand years. And now they're saying, well, the thousand years, not really a thousand years. They're just allegorizing. They're just not taking things literally. Um, Let me just say this. Revelation is the most symbolic book in the Bible. You guys have read the entire Old Testament prophets at this point. Do they use symbolism all over the place? Like, like should you read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, like, strictly literally? If you do, then Israel is a tree right? Like, I mean, there's metaphor, there's symbolism all over the place. And another thing for you guys to consider, I don't really think I got into this with you last year, but here's something just, just to throw out. According to Jeremiah, how long will the Babylonian captivity be? You remember? No. Uh, Judah being exiled in Babylon, how long does Jeremiah say it will be? 70 years. 70. You know how long it actually is? Roughly 40. (gasps) Oh no, unfulfilled prophecy. It's not. It's not. Daniel actually comes along in Daniel chapter 9 and is like, he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's in Persia. He's living during that part of the exile. All right, he's reading it and he has a vision where he figures out that it was an entirely symbolic number. Daniel comes out and tells you that. The, the symbolism there is um, Israel was supposed to celebrate something called the year of Jubilee which is um, they were supposed to like, rest and not do anything in the land and give the land rest every, uh, every seven years. They never celebrated it. And so by the time that you go from the conquest where they entered the land to the Babylonian exile there were 70 years of Jubilee that they were supposed to celebrate. And they didn't. So God is saying, you're going to be in exile 70 years. Basically, you're going to be in exile because you didn't do what? Celebrate Celebrate the Jubilee. They go to exile, but it's not a literal 70 years. It's only, you know, about half of that. And even in the exile, you get prophets who write and say, yeah, we're not actually going to be here 70 years. Jeremiah was speaking figuratively there. So I would would recommend to you that something like that, this really deserves some thought and attention whenever revelation says 1000 years does revelation mean from january 1st of this year to literally 1000 years later to the day is that really what is in view there or in the most symbolic book in the bible does this number have some symbolic function um it's something at least worth considering i'll give my thoughts we get there, if we get there, because we're losing some time next week that I didn't know about. So, Sophia? Um, Is there a rapture? rapture. So, So most of the time, whenever you move outside of dispensational premillennialism, the word rapture might be used, but it's being used about us being caught up in the air with Christ at his return as he's making the earth new. So you're not standing there while his purifying fire is making all things new. You go up into the sky with him and you kind of hang out for a minute and you see this really cool fire show happen. And then he's like, all right, let's go back. So, so it's kind of like this really awesome uh, roller coaster ride with Jesus. All right. Um, <laughs> hey, guys, we're all going, Woo! <laughs> now we go down, right? Um, so so in, our minds, in our minds, because of where we've grown up, dispensational premillennialism is very popular around here. And so whenever we hear rapture, we think all the Christians disappear and then everything goes to hell in a handbag dispensational <laughs> premillennialism is the only view that uses the word rapture that way i'm avoiding using the word rapture at all for the other views because i know how it's understood but you could be reading an, om- an millennial person who starts talking about the rapture but that's what he's talking about you know you being caught up in the air for the new heavens and new earth not this all the christians disappear randomly <laughs> type thing right um so good question bella the next one. Oh, I usually save mine for last, okay. so that I can be mean to all the other ones. No, not really. Um, I, it's just kind of the most natural thing to do. Plus, three, um, makes sense to put that first, off, middle, post, third. So, here you go. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to give you mine now. And usually I would pause after I put this on the board and be like, let me show you the scriptures for why, because I'll be honest, um, Revelation, if I take it to be about the 70 event, it's not really contributing much to this for me, right? Uh, so I would I would point you to a lot of other scriptures to try to argue for what I'm about to put on the board. But um, because we're losing a little bit of time, I may not do that as fully as I would like to, but who knows, I might get carried away in rabbit trail. I randomly started talking to one of my friends this morning before school about um, well actually you know what we're not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Push Postmill This is um, pre is pessimistic off is whatever it is depending on who you are. This is this is your optimistic one. Alright? This is your optimistic one. You've got um the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, you've got the church age, which we are still in. And then, what postmillennialism basically teaches is that prior to the return of Christ, there will be massive worldwide revival. And um, help me with this. Um, after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, All what will be saved? Romans 11? Israel. Israel. So this viewpoint says um, revival, uh, Gentiles first, then Israel. Um, This era of massive worldwide revival uh, of people turning to the Lord and converting to Christ would be the same thing as the millennial. Uh, is it a literal thousand years? Um, you know, I actually, I actually take it more to be. Um, I, I don't know, but some some post mills will say it's not literal thousand years. I actually think I take it that way, and I'll I'll explain why later if we have time for it. But I actually did. I I didn't used to, and like in the last few months, I'm I'm just I'm I'm more in that camp now than I used to be. So. Um, but there's this era of revival Um, this is sometimes called the golden age Um, not a utopia there are still people who are sinning, there are still unbelievers there are still Christians who are doing stupid stuff, I mean, come on now Um, you know, there's still death right, but this is an era where the world is very largely Christianized alright, by the way what did Jesus actually say, go into all the world and make disciples of what? Notice he didn't say people. What is a nation? Yeah, like countries. Go into... I mean, just notice that that language is big-scaled. And um, post-millennialism says the commission that Jesus gave his disciples is something that he's going to fulfill through his disciples. Isaiah says the whole earth will be covered in the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters fill the sea. Habakkuk repeats that. Um, So, uh, after this period of revival, um, this is the millennium. um, uh, After this point, um, I take it, there's a little bit of variance on this. I take there to be a short rebellion, short violent rebellion, but the Christ returns and then um, after this short violent rebellion when Christ returns uh, we have the judgment we have the resurrection we have new heavens and new earth Uh, in this short rebellion I think that Revelation 19 talks about that um, and um, I think that i don't think the church fights i think christ comes back at that point um i would not associate this with antichrist stuff i would associate antichrist stuff the way that we read it in first john where antichrist is a spirit that is presently at work in the world teaching things that go against the gospel um it's a it's a doctrinal heretical spirit type thing um so the short rebellion i I wouldn't associate that with antichrist but there are some post mill people who do um so let me, um, let me try to give a little bit of biblical context to this. We won't, we won't spend too much time on it, though. Um, Genesis 1 and 2. What are Adam and Eve supposed to do? Multiply and take. Starts with a D. Dominion, right? Adam and Eve are put in the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden is so special because the Garden of Eden is a place where they walk in fellowship with who? God. And so God then speaks to them and says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So are they supposed to stay in Eden? No. They're supposed to have a bunch of babies, They're supposed to be a lot of people, and they're supposed to spread out from the garden. As they spread out from the garden... Uh, are they going to lose God? No. He's everywhere. He's going to go with them. And so basically the commission given to Adam and Eve is to make all of the creation like what place? Eden. Eden. A place where God and man walk in fellowship together. Do Adam and Eve do that? No. But whenever we turn to the New Testament, there's this figure that emerges that the Bible calls the last Adam. And who is that? Jesus. And the last Adam has a bride. And what do we call her? The church. And if there if Adam and Eve language is being given to Jesus and the church, it makes sense that the job given to the first Adam and Eve that they failed to do is now being given to the new Adam and Eve. And is Jesus going to fail the same way Adam failed? No. In fact, this language becomes really, really explicit in uh, a passage like Colossians chapter one. Uh, Let's see here. Listen, listen to this language. Listen to how many echoes to Genesis it has. Um, Of this gospel, you have heard before in the word of truth, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, you hear that? Let's bear fruit multiply fill the earth the gospel is now going forth and it's bearing fruit it's increasing it's multiplying it's filling the earth through the work of Christ through his bride the church um there's a passage like, uh hebrews 2 which talks about how at the present time we don't see everything subjected under jesus's feet but how that day is coming first corinthians 15 jesus is putting all of his enemies presently under his feet and the last enemy that he'll put under his feet is death right he's in this process he's sitting at god's right hand and right now all things are being subject to him and then at the very end, even death will be subject to him. But there's this thrust throughout the, um, throughout the scriptures that Jesus is going to fulfill this work, that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is waiting for all things to be subjected to him. And the way that things are subjected to him and come into his kingdom is through the spread of the gospel. People repent. People convert. People become part of the kingdom of light as opposed to the kingdom of darkness. And Christ's kingdom spreads. And so, um, this view is very optimistic about what the church is going to do in the world, what the the gospel is going to do in the world. It's not because the church is all that. Um, Zechariah is a big book for this position, I think. Zechariah has this interesting statement, not by might, not by power, but by by my spirit, declares the Lord. The spirit works powerfully through the church to bring about conversions. There's also like these really weird Old Testament texts. There's one in Isaiah 65 and there's one in Zechariah 14 where there is still disease and death in the world. So is it the new heavens and new earth? No. There's still disease and death in the world, so it's not new heavens and new earth. But you get this language in Isaiah 65 and Zechariah 14 about all the earth being holy. This is, um, I'll read one of them. I'll do Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, it talks about how, um, um, this is what it says. Um, All the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. But on that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. If you read all of Zechariah 14, it's depicting this era of world history where there's still sin, there's still disease, there's still unbelievers in the world, but that the nations are all gathering together to worship God and the world has become so holy at this point that the term holy to the Lord, did you hear where it's put? on the bells of horses. That is a phrase in the Old Testament that is only ever put on the high priest's turban. And now the horses are as holy as that guy. So there's this spreading of holiness. There's this Christianization that has happened in the world at this point. There's still death and disease. So it's before the second coming of Christ. It's before the new heavens and new earth. But there's this era of utter holiness even though there's still uh, you know, sin, disease, things like that in the world to be done away with. So um, whenever people kind of ask me, like, why do you hold this view? I tell them I hold it because I think that it's what the Old Testament prophets hold. Whenever you read the Old Testament prophets and they talk about the coming of Jesus and what Christ will do in the world, uh, is it big or small? It's big. It's big. And is his mission successful or unsuccessful? It's successful. Like the Old Testament prophets seem to have this insane optimism about what's going to happen post-Messiah. And so I think that the hope that they have about what the good news of the Messiah will do in the world is something that we can have too. And I, I think that whenever we read Genesis to Revelation, there's no pessimism about what the church empowered by the gospel is going to do. Uh, in fact I think what I find is all the nations will one day convert and then Israel will convert and then the Lord will come to Zion right that's what, ro- that's what Romans 11 said at least um, you know the pleroma of the Gentiles comes in Israel is saved and then the king appears in Zion so the king appears after the revival happens that makes sense where do like what scriptures mainly Revelation, okay, they're going to take Revelation to be entirely futuristic. And Revelation is talking a lot about judgment. It's talking about really, really bad judgment. They see that as worldwide judgment to happen right before Christ returns, whereas I would see it as destruction of Jerusalem. Um, One of the things that we'll look at in Revelation is that there is a technical word used every time you see the word earth in Revelation. Um, It's the word ge, G-E, which in the Old Testament, um, whenever the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek word gi is the word that's used to talk about the Holy Land. Whenever you want to say the land, which is Israel, you use gi. Whenever you want to talk about the world as a whole, you say cosmos. So Revelation is, in our Bibles, is translating gi, which... Is usually just translated land for the holy land. They're translating it earth for some reason. And it, that makes it seem like global. It makes it seem like worldwide, where it's like, really, if you look technically at that word, that's not ever what it means. So I don't understand why we're translating it that way in Revelation. It looks like all of the judgment is centered on the gi. So, all right. Um, You guys read Revelation 1, correct? Should have given you a quiz. Um, one thing that I, I like to point out, uh, just very fast, in chapter 1, verse 9, um, what does John say he's living in? Tribulations. And notice that he doesn't just say, a tribulation, he says, the tribulation. Um, A lot of people who talk about a great tribulation that's going to happen right before Christ returns have a tendency to very much overlook that verse. Whatever tribulation John is talking about later in Revelation, he is saying that he is a partner with people in the first century in it. He says he is a partner with them in the tribulation, which is the same tribulation he's going to reference later in the book. So um, that is something that I want you guys to kind of focus on um what day of the week in verse 10 does he receive this vision the lord's day so so, um not not the old testament sabbath what day is the lord's day it's the day that jesus is resurrected so it's sunday so um john is in exile in patmos he's experiencing tribulation he's there because he was pressured to offer an incense sacrifice to the emperor and he said no So he gets kicked off, uh, kicked out of the Roman Empire. He's exiled to Patmos. And while he's there, even though he's all by himself, it says he's in the spirit on the Lord's Day. He's still worshiping because it's the day of worship. And during his time of worship on the Lord's Day, all alone in Patmos, he finds out he's not actually all alone. Because what happens to him next? No. No, it does not. He hears a voice in verse 11. And then he turns around and he does not see an angel. What does he see? Okay, he sees seven lampstands. He sees seven... Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, who does this person say he is later? He says in verse 18, I'm the living one. Behold, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Who is it? it's Jesus. So, so not an angel. All right. The first vision that John sees or the first part of his vision that he sees, he sees Christ and Jesus is freaking scary. Um, read, um, yeah, Josh read 12 through 16. So, um, let's see how, how good you guys are at this. Um, bronze, fire, water, um, lampstands, all in the same passage. Tabernacle. Sounds like a tabernacle. Jesus is a living tabernacle. Living temple, right? Um, if you want to interact with God, where do you go? to the living living temple of Jesus. Uh, By the way, was that a really big theme in John's gospel? So it's still a big theme here. Um, Now, let's... um, I, I love this part of the book. How many of you have read Revelation before? One of you. Two of you, maybe. How many of you have ever heard somebody, or maybe you felt this way, how many of you have ever heard someone before say i don't like reading revelation it's scary fair um john is about to see some really wacky stuff he's going to see locusts that have a face like a woman and, a, and teeth like lions and uh they're coming up out of a pit which is like totally hell and um he's going to see satan he's going to see beasts that have seven heads and um Ten humps and horns, and he's going to see a woman that's sitting on one of them drinking blood. Like, I mean, this is like, if you have this dream at night, all right, you wake up, and you're 16, and you still go to mom's bed. Okay? Dude is about to see some really terrifying stuff. You think about it, um, any of you guys ever been up at, like, Vulture, Rocket, Pocket before? And you go straight to the edge of the rock and you look down and there's just like nothing there. Like, you, you imagine John here. He's on like the edge of a precipice. And, and according to him, the things in Revelation are going to happen when? Soon. soon. So he's standing here and there's a lot of unknown out there. He's about to see a lot of tough and scary stuff and he knows that it could be happening as soon as he wakes up from the vision. Like, this dude is on the brink, and his future looks scary. And despite that, despite all the scary stuff that he sees in his vision, there is only one thing scary enough to make him fall down as if he's dead. Jesus. Yep. That's what he does in verse 17, by the way. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He's going to see Satan... He's going to see the beast. He's going to see the prostitute. He's going to see the locusts that have women faces and like lion teeth and, and stuff. I, I mean, he is going to see some, some wacky, wacky stuff. One thing is scary enough to make him fall down as if it's dead. And it's Christ. Uh, you guys like VeggieTales? You guys ever listen to God is bigger than the boogeyman? This is the adult version of that. Okay what um, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Oh, God's bigger than the boogeyman. He's watching out for you and me. John recognizes throughout this book that the scariest thing in the cosmos is the thing that loved him enough to die for him. It's the thing that's on his side. And so whenever he sees the accuser, whenever he sees the dragon, whenever he sees all of these things that are going to be opposing him and, and the people of God, he doesn't fall down as if he's dead. Um, According to James chapter 2, the demons believe that God is one and it makes them tremble. The thing that scares John is scared to death of Jesus. And so throughout this book, I think that this initial vision gives John comfort and it gives him hope and it gives him security. That whatever those things that are soon coming look like, however hard they may be, no matter, no matter what he's going to face, he's got one on his side that lived and died and has the keys of death in Hades. And all of these things are scared to death of Christ. The scariest thing in the cosmos is the thing that's on John's side. Kinda like whenever you're walking through downtown Chattanooga and there's like a sketchy dude, but you're like, it's fine, I've got my big strong dad right beside me, right? Like, I mean this is this is the type of thing that 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 John is feeling. Um any of you ever had a night terror terror before? Or any of you guys ever had sleep paralysis before or something like that too? Like, I mean I, I bring that up just to be like, you know, those those are real phenomenon and those are really scary phenomenon too. And people like have some wacky stuff happen to them whenever that happens, or, or they see wacky things. And what what you can what you can be assured of though is, however much that stuff scares you, Christ is bigger. Christ is stronger. Okay, you you leave here in a few years and you go off to college, and it brings some anxiety, some stress, some fear, and 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 there's uh, a lot of unknowns in your future. Oh, there's one on the throne of the universe. That is powerful, big enough. He loves you. He died for you. He was raised for you, and and this can give us stability if we think on it. Now, John falls down as if he's dead, which is a very natural response. People do that whenever they just see angels, and he's seeing something much bigger than an angel here. And um, Jesus has both of his hands full. All right, what is he standing among? What's kind of surrounding Jesus in this text? seven lampstands, and then Jesus has his hands full. In one hand, he has seven what? Stars. 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 Just, just like, trying to picture that for a minute. And in the other hand, what does he have according to verse is it 19, 20, 18? No, that's coming out of his mouth. He's not even holding it. I had a friend that um, literally ran away and joined the circus, um, and um, she used to she used to be a fire eater. And, like, I don't know if that's not relevant at all. But, like, it's just, like, super cool. Like, how do you do that? But, like, Jesus just has, like, this sword coming out of his mouth, right? Um, but he, he has the seven stars in one hand. What does he have in verse 18? It says, I have the keys of death in Haiti. Keys are very important symbolism. But, but before we get to that, he reaches down, he touches John with one of his hands and says, fear not. Right? All right, that's a command that I think runs throughout the book. Don't be afraid, because you know who I am. So fear not. Um, uh, I am the first and the last, Alpha and Omega. I'm the living one. I I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In the ancient world, all of the different religions are polytheistic, and the different gods have dominion over one part of creation. So, like, what is Poseidon in control of? Yeah, the ocean. What is um, Zeus in control of? Yes. The skies. Hades is in control of the underworld, right? You, you've got these different gods that have dominion over different territories. Now, these gods always get along perfectly, don't they? No, <laughs> no they don't. They fight all the time. And sometimes, you know what the gods actually do to each other? They kill each other. Now do they usually stay dead? No, but, you know, they, they fight, they beat each other up, and a lot of times, like, whenever these two gods get into a brawl, if one god beats the other, what does he get to take? Whatever control yeah, kingdom. whatever dominion he's in control of. This is, um, like, if you remember the Bel and Yom thing, right? Um, like, what was Yom? Yom, Yom is the uh, river god, but he okay. wants to be in control of the sky, and he's mad that El is giving Bel the sky, so El says, well, go kill Bell, and then you can have this guy too, right? So, so there is this um, idea that whenever the gods fight, whoever wins, the victor takes the spoils. And the symbol of having dominion over something is keys, right? Um, you ever heard of, like, the keys of the city before that's presented to the governor? They have authority in the city. These are keys uh, to different things that I own. I have the key, so it's mine. It's not yours, right? This is my car key because the car is mine. It is not your car. Right, and so the idea here is that there is something that death and Hades used to own and Jesus just whooped their booties and, and now whatever death and Hades used to own Jesus now owns and what is it? Death and Hades. Hmm? what did death and Hades used to have that Jesus took from them? We're going to have to talk about Jesus' sin a little bit, aren't we? Us. Wages of sin is? Death. And death leads to Hades. There's a people that Jesus has bought back. He's redeemed us by his blood. Right? The faithful. And so, in in a sense, we all used to once belong to death and Hades. And Jesus has fought them. Jesus has conquered them. Jesus now is in possession of what they used to own, namely us. So tomorrow, what we're going to do is we'll talk about that a little bit more. We're also going to talk about the lampstands and the stars and their symbolism, and then very quickly go through the seven letters of the seven churches. So need you guys to read chapter 2 and 3 tonight, just those two chapters. Come ready to talk about them tomorrow. Yes.